Spotlights. You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 421. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink. That's it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Very good. Uh, if you are just joining us on This Week in Marvel, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, things we're excited about, things that are happening. Anything is on the table for This Week in Marvel. Yeah, that's for sure. And this week is bum 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 savage. <laughs> that's not what savage sounds like. I don't know what it is. But we are looking at some savage moments from 80 years of Marvel history. We are talking about my absolute favorite savage, She-Hulk, and then we have an interview with the savagely clever Adam Savage. Because, Ryan, you got to visit him in San Francisco. Yeah, we did a big trip to San Fran, and so we got to hang out with Adam Savage in his place called The Cave, I believe, where he does his show Tested, and he has just everything cool you ever want to see. He has a, like, bushel of samurai swords and just other swords. Like That is the only metric for yeah. samurai swords is a bushel. Exactly. We did a walking tour, which you guys will hear some of in this episode. Uh, but Adam, if you don't know, was the co-host of Mythbusters. He has uh, this channel on YouTube where he just does cool things. And it's great because he's able to, like, say, hmm, how does this work? And then he tries to figure out how that works, which is really, really neat. He seriously blows my mind. I am V-jealous, uh, as the kids say. But I got to take a trip once upon a time as well, Ryan. Aren't you jealous? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lorraine. So jealous. Where'd you go? I went to the set of Marvel's Runaway Season 3. Fui, 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 fui. The final season. I know, mm. I know. But I think that they are going out really big. Uh, and that trailer is crazy. Like Morgan Le Fay is like showing off crazy magic. We have Cloak and Dagger talking smack. It looks really fun. Super cool. Uh, and if you are not reading the Runaways comic book series right now, <gasps> you are missing out on one of the best books we have published in my entire time at Marvel. I highly agree with that. Yeah. Same. Yep. Same. Um, you guys should go watch the trailer for season three, and then it is out on Hulu on December 13th. Very cool. Also out this week is the first episode of Marvels, the uh, podcast available exclusively on Stitcher Premium. Uh, first episode is out now. This series is part of the big celebration, marking the 25th anniversary of Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross's amazing, award-winning four-part comic book Marvels. I mean, Alex Ross's work is gorgeous in general, but I just think this book is like outrageously beautiful and it looks at the superhero world from a more human perspective and it's just gorgeous. Yeah. So that's the book, but now we have a podcast. Yeah. Lorraine, I heard you love fiction podcasts. I do. I have like a weird kind of obsession. I I'm very interested in the way that they decide to tell the story. And I love this one because we're immediately sort of inserted into the radio of that time. And then we're like pulled into the narrative and it like is very capturing. It's spooky. I listened to it like walking around in the dark last night. Uh, it was awesome <laughs> because you hear the sounds of New York City and yeah. I was already walking in New York City and I kept being like taking off my headphones and being like, is that a siren for should I be looking around? Oh, no, it's in my headphones. Okay. Yeah. There's some great voice work and mm -hmm. just atmospheric, as you mentioned. Uh, it's really cool. So if you are not subscribed to uh, Stitcher Premium, please do so now. You don't want to miss this show as it drops. But it is coming to all podcast platforms in 2020. But Lorraine, there are more things we're hyped for this week, comma, including news, colon. There's really cool stuff. 
Yeah. The run for Marvel Studios' Avengers Damage Control has been extended at Void VR locations, which I really am excited about because I haven't made it out to go myself. I know you've been, Ryan, but I got to go. There are multiple locations of The Void that have dates through the end of December 2019. That's this year. You can also get details and tickets at thevoid.com. Don't avoid... Don't avoid the void. void. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's stuff that we're hyped about this week. But we got to talk about top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List. For the week of November 20th, our favorite books were Absolute Carnage number 5, Annihilation, Scourge, Alpha number 1, Deadpool number 1, Star Wars number 75. And I had to give big love to Captain Marvel number 12. Also, like such a good week for letters in the back from the people writing the books. Mm. Um, Captain Marvel number 12 had a great like letters page. And Deadpool number 1 had like such a touching one. Yeah, and also that book is like hilarious. Oh my gosh. Uh, but for Marvel's pull list, you can check out video version that we do on the YouTube and Marvel.com. You can subscribe and listen to it in all the great places. But Ryan, why don't we talk about this week in Marvel history? Yeah, because this year we are celebrating 80 years of Marvel history. It is coming to a close. We've only got a couple weeks left to tell you about all the cool stuff that has happened across 80 years. So yeah, it's been really fun to do. November 27th, 1973, the first appearance of the Spider-Mobile in Amazing Spider-Man number 130 by Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew. Johnny Storm helps build Spidey a Jeep slash buggy slash Spidey hybrid vehicle, and they take it out on the town this issue it shoots webs and it's ridiculous and it's beloved and it shows up everywhere also aunt may stands at the wedding altar with doc ock by the end of the issue this is such a good issue it's It's a lot of fun really good yeah uh all right november 25th 1975 we get our first shadowy appearance of lalandra in uncanny x-men number 97 by chris claremont and dave cockrum she comes to professor xavier in one of his weirdo dreams lalandra normani was the magistrix or empress of the shiar empire and definitely charles xavier's otp um in your opinion (laughs) who do you have with with charlie x Uh, see the thing of it is is i feel like there's a lot like there's legion's mom there's a she little Moira. Him. She left him because he was a dink and he sucked. Yeah, and but so, he's always a dink and he sucks. You think Lalandra is she yeah. sucks enough to like be his OTP? No, he elevated himself for her in a way that he never did for anyone else. He became better. He like became less selfish, uh, less superficial. He was a slightly better Charles Xavier. I'm gonna say that his OTP is himself because that's the only person he truly loves. Goodbye. I will agree with that one. It's correct. Let us move on. (laughs) All right. November 28th, 2007, Hope Summers debuts in X-Men number 205 by Mike Carey and Chris Bashalo. This is chapter five of Messiah Complex, capital X at the end. The mega crossover focused around the first mutant born since the events of M-Day. M-Day was when Scarlet Witch said, no more mutants at the end of House of M. And then no more mutants were born. There were only 200 left. So now there's a new mutant that gets born in this storyline. That mutant is baby Hope Summers, who'd been kidnapped and hunted since the event started in the previous couple of chapters. This issue, we finally see her for the first time, and we see the person who took her. Highly recommend this event. It is tremendous. Uh, This entire run with Hope Summers and her storyline is so good. Personal request from me to you. Yes. Um, Can you, for Halloween, dress up as Cable and make sure that your baby is Hope Summers? She'll be so big at that point. She still counts. Come on. Think about it. Just sure. think it over. Think yep. it over. Yep, yep, yep. 
but that is everything uh, this week in Marvel history. You can, of course, check out a new story with links to the digital comics, and we'll have all that for you on Marvel.com. Thank you to Jamie Freverly and Emily Kamura for helping put all that together. But now, Lorraine, it is time for you to go big, to Hulk out, to She-Hulk out. This is this is my first deep dive on This Week in Marvel. Just like a smattering of applause for just me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's get into it. So She-Hulk is indeed the most hilarious, the most bad, babeliest, the queen of the comics, in my personal opinion. She is not only a super important Avenger and member of the Fantastic Four, but she's just exceedingly unique as a character. Unlike a lot of the guys like the Hulk or the Thing that uh, get blasted with powers and then they're like oh no nuts I don't want to be a superhero she's like gets the gamma radiation and then eventually she's like this is sick I love my life I look dope plus she is in my mind like a super classic comedy character not so different from guys like Deadpool I think at her core she is the best and the brightest when she is just like living her life being fabulous being a single lady fighting a bunch of weird ass villains and then breaking the fourth wall and just flirting with everything that moves (laughs) she has so much swag so um she was introduced in savage she hulk number one in 1979 even though it says 1980 i've learned lots of things from ryan which is don't believe the cover dates they're all lies they are always lies they're about three months ahead of time the first issue is by stan lee steve buscema and Chick Stone, but in issue two, the book is immediately handed off to David Anthony Kraft, Mike Vosberg, with Chick Stone continuing for pretty much the remainder of the run, which is about 25 issues. So Jennifer Walters was raised in California. Her father was Sheriff Morris Walters, her mother Elaine Banner Walters, but her mother died very suspiciously in an accident, but her father was the sheriff. There were finger quotes there. And, uh, When her mother passed away, she became really close with her cousin, who was this guy, Bruce Banner. And then, depending on the run, she either went to UCLA or she went to Harvard or she went to both. But basically, she was like, I'm going to be the other side of my father. I am going to seek justice for people. I'm going to be a lawyer. So she does that. She investigates a bunch of bad dudes, including, bum, 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 it wasn't an accident. Her mother was actually bumped off by Nick Trask, this mob boss. And guess what? She ends up getting wrapped up in a case, again, involving Nick Trask, where she is defending his former bodyguard, who Nick Trask has framed for murder. Well, of course, she's like, I'm a really good lawyer. She sniffs that out immediately, and Nick Trask puts a hit on her. Well, she gets shot. Bruce Banner finds her. He takes her to the hospital. They're like, she needs a blood transfusion. And instead of like, I don't know, checking the blood bank, he's like, I'm a cousin and I have blood. So here we go. That's how it works, right? (laughs) Yeah, you get it. So he's a blood match. They transfuse his blood into her. And bing, bang, boom, we've got a gamma radiated Jennifer Walters. Awesome. So issue two, She-Hulk immediately gets weirder. And she really just spends her early days trying to be a lawyer, but she gets pissed off in the courtroom and then she hulks out and then she's like, oh no, I'm in the bathroom. I'm hulking out. What do I do? She can't quite control the She-Hulk. The She-Hulk does some good things, but also does some bad things, all of the normal Hulk. But eventually she hones her powers and um, 
There's a really key issue in the series around Savage She-Hulk number 13, which introduces Man-Wolf. He is so weird, but he appears a lot. He is uh, John Jameson, who is an astronaut who ended up in a microverse And then he picked up a stone that he actually found on the moon when he was astronauting, and it turns him into a star god named Man-Wolf, and he looks like a werewolf, man-wolf thing. With, like, real cool white fur and a little bit of a spacey 70s jumpsuit. Oh, yeah. He's great. Oh, yeah, baby. Um, Also in this issue, she meets Patsy Walker. Um, They're kind of at odds at first, um, but... Later, they become super good friends, so that's super important. Also, her and Manwolf are on again, off again for her entire history, pretty much. So this issue introduces both of them, and they're very important. Also, a lot of this drama is sort of foiled by Jen Walter's drama, which is that she is between her two friends, uh, Zapper, as well as Richard Rory, but they're basically vying for her attention. She dates one for a while. She dates the other for a while. And the whole series is tied up very nicely in a bow where her father kind of accepts that she is the she-hole and she's a vigilante, but uh, it's just truly a delight. After that series wraps up, she puts the drama behind her and instead getting into her comedy years. And she becomes an incredibly important part of both the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. So she's first added to the Avengers team in 1982, in Avengers 221 through around 242 by Jim Shooter, David Michelini, and Bob Hall with a handful of other artists. Basically, Janet Van Dyne is like, we need some ladies to join this team. So she sends out an ad in the paper for her friends because she's like, I don't know where these ladies are. So she's like, Black Widow, Dazzler, Invisible Girl, Spider-Woman, She-Hulk, get at me. And they show up uh, at the Avengers Mansion like, all right, what's going on? Uh, On the way there, She-Hulk drives up in her pink convertible because she's very 80s Los Angeles. She immediately rear-ends Clint Barton and it eventually sets up their antagonistic friendship from the beginning. Um, But I just really love this because in the Avengers book, she's essentially the comic relief. She's always walking around in like short shorts, like doing um, like lifting up the couch and vacuuming or just like carrying her car to get it fixed. It's just her carrying big stuff and like hanging out in the mansion. And it's a delight. And then she pops up in Secret Wars in 1984. Two interesting things happen. One, they introduce Titania, which ends up being a long-term villain to She-Hulk because they're great foils. Titania is like a little weak human lady, and Doctor Doom gives her the power to be super buff, and then she just wants to fight all of the most buff people. And so, Everyone. She's like, yeah. you dudes, I'm going to fight you. She's yeah. great. Um, so obviously she always wants to fight She-Hulk. And then Ben Grimm decides to not return to Earth. So he's like, hey, She-Hulk, would you go be the muscle for the fam? Um, so then she ends up going on over to the Fantastic Four. She appears, breaks the news to a very pregnant Sue Storm <laughs> that she's like, hey, guess what? Ben's not coming back. So she's kind of like serving double duty, being a foil to Reed Richards, kind of being like, what is the science? Explain it so we understand it, the readers, and also just being like a big buff lady. This run of Fantastic Four was also really important because of the creator who was writing and drawing the series, right? That's right. It was John Byrne. He has so much fun writing her, drawing her in this series, and you can really see that love for her. And this really, really sets up 
her next big sensational run, um, the sensational She-Hulk. And I think to me defines the character definitively in her run in comics. Uh, That kicks off in 1989 through 1994. It's 50 issues by John Byrne, Bob Wyacek, and Glennis Oliver. This is where the character really becomes a full-on comedy character. This is a comedy book and I love it. She starts breaking the fourth wall, meaning talking directly to the readers on the front cover of issue number one. And so for Marvel fans who are like, Deadpool is the one who breaks the fourth wall. Uh-uh. This is before Deadpool is introduced. So it's like two years or so. But even before Deadpool really starts breaking the fourth wall, because he doesn't do that for another bunch of years. So she is like, this is where it really happens. For serious. So we meet her. She is stuck in her She-Hulk form because she's gotten an extra dose of gamma radiation. And she has been enslaved by the ringmaster. She's kind of she's been hypnotized into essentially working at the circus. But ultimately, uh, she breaks free of the mind control. She heads back to New York. She's like, hey, Janet, I need a place to stay. So she's staying at Janet Van Dyne's place. She gets a new job. Well, she's being stuck big and green, so she is working uh, for the DA, and she meets her new best friend when she goes to start working at the office, and I'm obsessed with this because her bestie is Louise Wheezy Mason, a.k.a. the Blonde Phantom from the old days of Timely Comics. Uh, One of the best designs of Timely Comics, hands down. That character design for Blonde Phantom is so good, so timeless. Man, she's so cool. But we get a little look at Wheezy's past from when she was the Blonde Phantom, but she stepped away from comics, and while she wasn't in comics, this is where it gets really meta. She's like, basically, we weren't in the comics, so me and my husband, we got old, and now I'm middle-aged. And she's like a little, like, aged kind of blonde Betty Boop-esque character (laughs) at this point. Um, And they both work for D.A. Towers, who is this very handsome D.A., to the point where She-Hulk turns to John Byrne, the writer, through the panel and is like, you gave me a boss who's like this hot and not single? I'm going to fight you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) This starts a whole really fun arc where her and Wheezy are having fun, going out on adventures, her and her middle-aged best friend who is essentially like a human, so she has to kind of protect her. Um, And they're also having a lot of fun talking to the readers and talking to the editors. Also, I'm obsessed with these covers. They're super funny. They always have this kind of like sex sells sort of idea where they're like, do this like cheesecake pose for the cover. And She-Hulk's always like, are you kidding? Like what's happening? But it's, it's very funny and very cheeky and dealt with in like a... Um, it was very self-aware, very funny. Uh, yeah. I think fans really glommed onto it for a while. Uh, the series ultimately ended because John Byrne, quote unquote, died by tripping over a subplot. So good. It went on for uh, about 10 more issues and then it wrapped up. It is delightful. Yeah. And so that ends, what, like 1994. Mm-hmm. For a while, she sort of like floats around, doesn't do too much. I know she's involved with Avengers stuff for a while. She is part of Avengers Disassembled. She actually 
Scarlet Witch makes her rage out and go a little wild and rip, there's like I, she tears the vision in half just rips them apart it's so gross and she can't control it I remember that being such a visceral moment and it's so crazy because that whole issue it's like Avengers Mansion gets destroyed yeah. she hulks out yeah at that point with the Avengers disassembled she gets a new series right around that time yeah um, she comes back in She-Hulk by Dan Slott and Juan Babio uh, with art also by Paul Pelletier. It's such a fun run. She immediately kind of is on the outs. She gets kicked out of Avengers Mansion for having too many overnight guests that do not have security clearance and partying too hardy and inviting too many strangers home. But then she also gets fired from her job because essentially she's disappearing from the courtroom too much, being like, I have to go Avenger. And it's like also swaying the cases and all of that. So eventually she starts off the series at ground zero where she's like, I don't have a job and I don't have a home. So here we go. Uh, She moves out. She gets a job working for Goodman, Lieber, Kurtzberg and Holloway, which is such a fun shout out to our original creators, of course, being Martin Goodman, Stanley Lieber, a.k.a. Stan Lee, Jack Kurtzberg, a.k.a. Kirby and uh, Holloway, who is her boss in the comic. Uh, This is just Dan Slott just like cracking his knuckles and saying, (laughs) let's do this. So much fun. And she begins taking on cases of superhuman people who didn't necessarily choose it. And maybe it's like ruining their lives. So she's really helping people out that aren't um, necessarily wanting of these powers. I think they also use comic books to solve cases. Yeah, and stuff that's like true. That. They use that as like actual legal materials. It's so much fun. And it hits that fourth wall breaking without doing a lot of the fourth wall breaking. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really great next step for She-Hulk. Exactly. And that's totally the point that I wanted to hit with this run is this is like the perfect marriage in my mind of like her early drama and her sensational like fourth wall getting wild self. This whole run is really delightful. We get her classic fun flirty self being wild, but also a little bit growing up into being the kind of hero that she wants to be. She has a lot more highlights. She does a ton more stuff. She's in the Contest of Champions where Gamora trains her. We have Charles Soule run of She-Hulk where she gets into solving super detective cases. And that's a really fun look at her as like truly a lawyer and kind of very detective-y. I think Charles loves a detective style story. So And Charles being a practicing lawyer yep. like ha- puts a lot of practical knowledge into his stories. I just want to wrap up by saying I love She-Hulk. She is one of my all-time, all-time favorite characters. She's brilliant and vivacious, and she owns her power, and she has, like, big female energy. And uh, there is really nothing that she can't do. She can do the drama. She can do the comedy. uh, And she can do a lot of smooching. We're going to give this to Jamie to put into an article for Marvel.com, right? Yeah. With lots of links, and people can check out all these different runs on uh, Marvel.com, Marvel Unlimited. And I'm sure you're going to be very curious to keep She-Hulk in mind over the next couple of years. We all know what's coming for for Jen Walters uh, on the screens, so it's very cool. And I'm also very excited because they announced that the head writer is going to be Jessica Gao, who is also the head writer for a ton of crazy things like Robot Chicken, uh, but also Rick and Morty. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she's just worked on a bunch of insanely funny, 
quirky, nerdy shows. So I think it's going to be really good. Oh, man. I can't wait for that. But now we got to move on to our interview with Adam Savage. Tucker Marcus and I were in San Francisco, and we got to sit down with Adam Savage in Adam's lair, his cave, where Adam records his podcast. It was very cool. I heard he has a lot of cool toys. And um, did you bring any for me? No, I couldn't take any. He did, like, his prize thing is a replica of a gun from Blade Runner, which is beautiful and wild and he's got lightsabers and all kinds of stuff we'll talk about a lot of this in the podcast but uh it was really neat listen to our chat with adam savage right now tucker is here with yes, me tucker yes, how hello. you feeling i am doing probably better than i've ever done in my entire life i'm doing <laughs> i'm doing really well uh and that is because we are in san francisco and we are sitting at a wonderful table with adam savage adam how are you very good very good welcome to the cave we Thank are you. actually sitting at the white table at which i record my own podcast every mm-hmm. week so yes. it's hollowed ground yeah as we say <laughs> you know and uh it's very cool that to to give the marvelites who uh may be unfamiliar the cave is the coolest place on earth maybe uh there's something for everyone up and to my right, I see Loki's helmet. To my left, I see an Iron Man suit. Uh, and around is everything else. Tucker, what, 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 like, where does your eye go? It, this is a really good question because I feel like I know a lot of the stories. I'm sorry, Adam, of of these of, of many of these pieces. You watch a lot of the stuff on yes, Tested. Yes, okay. I'm a, a yeah. big Tested fan. So I'm curious, is the space bigger or smaller than you expected? <sighs> You know, the one thing that really surprised me was the the like geographical location of the lathe. Um, <laughs> like in my mind, it was o- over there. Oh, um, fascinating! Uh, so, wow, that's about as esoteric as it gets for you, <laughs> really Marvel dig listeners. That sort of. But look, we had a fan who actually figured out where the cave was by noting um, a particular feature in the in the roof that you can see from the inside, wow. and then searching Google Earth. No, and, wow. no I'm not wow. kidding. <laughs> So yeah, the yeah. esoterica goes deep here. Sure. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into more of that, but I want to start things off by asking Adam, what is your Marvel origin story? How did you become a fan of Marvel? Oh, wow. Um, weirdly, I don't want to say the Iron Man film, although I think that's the first time at which... I, uh, the original Iron Man film, Favreau's first film... Mm-hmm. It might be the point at which I realized how seriously one could take these subjects and how much fun there was to unpack. It is such an amazing and unique document and especially interesting to rewatch after all 22 films have come out. Like... I used to joke on stage that, like, I grew up before superhero movies were good. (laughs) And I love the Richard Donner Superman, but it's unwatchable these days. When the dam breaks, the water droplets are, like, the size of houses (laughs) because the scale they were using was so weird and funky. Um, So for me, uh, the intersection of the first time I wanted to dress up like a Marvel character, that's definitely Iron Man. Ah, mm. uh, and that's like a, a beautiful fandom moment. I, I think you know you do cosplay. You have had this wonderful history. When did you start just deciding I want to dress up as these characters that I love, whether whatever it was? That was a really slow and interesting process. So, uh, on tested a couple of years ago, I built a suit of armor with Terry English, who made all the armor for John Borman's nineteen eighty one film Excalibur, uh, and I got to fulfill a childhood dream by doing that. And that childhood dream was started. By that film, in 1981, I became obsessed with armor. I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and looked at their armor room. 
And then I realized when I started to look at uh, 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 armor and spacesuits that I loved them for the same reason, that we're kind of self-evolving our hermit crab shells to protect ourselves against harsher and harsher environments. And then on Mythbusters, as we started to, to become more sophisticated about how we did the shows, every time we needed a specific piece of safety equipment, I would buy my own I would buy the best version I could find for myself. And this is twofold. One is I have control over it, which means that it's always going to fit me better and that's going to be safer overall. But two, it's because when I put on a piece of safety equipment, it's kind of like a little bit of a superpower. So I put on a proximity suit and I'm impervious to fire for the next couple of hours. I have a bomb <laughs> suit. I have a beekeeping suit. Each of these is like a version of a superhero suit for me. And then um, somewhere around 2008, I think we did an episode where I dressed as Neo from the Matrix. And I could see how much color it added to the narrative, but also the resonance from fans of seeing me get dressed up in a character I was moved by in a costume that I felt really good in. And then I realized, oh, wow, I can satisfy two things at once here. I can give myself the cosplay Jones I've always wanted. Because I'm doing this for work, it's all deductible. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's like a 30% discount in volume. Uh, and then uh, I'm as a producer, I know that not only does this add color uh, and shape to the stories, but there's a, a deeper color and shape just from the inside of me. Like it's 10 year old me being seeing I'm telling whenever I'm doing that, what, I'm telling 10 year old me it's OK to let your freak flag fly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was about about 2007, 2008 is when I started doing it. And then pretty much for every Mythbusters episode ever after that, I was like, ah, oh, what's my costume for this one? I got to figure something out. <laughs> Having you know, grown up watching Mythbusters, it's it's very, very fascinating that you point out the, the Neo costume in particular because I can remember that episode. And I can remember a certain... You can see... I literally feel like you can see on camera the impact that it was having on you. Because remember, there, you had those high boots, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And you talk about the external aspect of it, of like the visuals, mm -hmm. etc. And then that internal aspect. It's so fascinating to see that as one of the many origin stories on this journey. Well, uh, and, you know, I I take as uh, really important this axiom I came across in El Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, that to know that what is true in your secret heart is universally true. Uh, and so as a person who is in the public eye, who tells stories for a living, uh, I know that the stories that are going to resonate the most are the ones that are the truest to me and resonate the deepest with me. And so there was a moment when I put on that Neo costume and I walked out from my car and my crew saw me and they all went, right. They all sort of hid these church giggles and I felt fresh embarrassment. And it doesn't matter that I'm hosting my own TV show. I'm still feeling exposed and vulnerable in this costume because I realized my crew isn't laughing at me. They're laughing at how revealed I am by the joy of wearing this mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I decided at that point to dive headfirst into it rather right. than shy away. Right. Wow. R Ryan, have you ever done any cosplay stuff? No, you know, the only... I, your mustache is a little bit of cosplay. <laughs> yeah, it, it is definitely part of the character that I've built for myself. Uh, you know, I, Modok is my favorite character. Modok is this amazing Jack Kirby creation who is, uh, he's a scientist who becomes basically a massive head and a, a, a chair built around him. And then he's evil, diabolical, this wild thing. And I've thought about 
because his he is a giant head with yeah. his little limbs and everything, I want to do just a build around oh, with like so... little limbs. And I've seen some I've people seen do some it. people do that. That's and a... I I like that to me. I I feel like I would when you were talking about that joy you would feel that like exposure. I think I would feel that same way. And there's a there's an interesting aspect of that that took me a while to understand at the cons is that when you really nail a costume and somebody else enjoys it, you are giving something very generous to them. You're, you're giving them a reality. And, and there's a way in which cosplay is a form of theater in which the line between the audience and the performer is constantly moving in a way that's satisfying for both the audience and the performer. There, there is, you know, it's, it's funny how this conversation started about like a suit of armor because there is not only the performance aspect that comes with cosplay, and that's the most fun, but there's also this this other less obvious thing, I feel like, that is kind of a suit of armor. It is like you just become this other thing. You hold yourself differently. You act differently. It is, it, it, it is so fascinating how i guess i guess it's like a a study in like commedia dell'arte or some on some level or or mask work of just being able to not just performatively change but then like on an interior level completely you know become a different person well and i think that there's there's a great uh, quote I came across where someone asked Paul Thomas Anderson, is it weird to work with Daniel Day-Lewis when he doesn't break character for like three months? And Anderson said, let me put it to you with a question. Wouldn't you, if you could, turn yourself into someone else for three months? Like if if you could arrange your life that the structures, everyone would agree upon that, what an opportunity that would be. And I heard that. And I was like, oh, yes, I get that. I totally get why, 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 why Viggo Mortensen didn't take off Aragorn's costume for years. Right. right. <laughs> and in addition, when you're sweating into your costume, there's a way in which you're making it yours. Mm-hmm. When I make one of these costumes, the making of it is only half of its of its lifespan. It's the wearing of it that is completing. It has right. to be used for something. Right. Right. So there are some costumes in my collection that I have yet to wear in public, and they're still kind of only <laughs> m- only half the way there. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, you talk about building these and making so much of the pieces here. When did do you remember the first thing you, you built that made you think like this? I I need to do this. I need to continue with this. I need to further this as where I want to go with the rest of my life. Oh, well, it's an ongoing process. But I was incredibly lucky in the lottery of my birth to be born to the parents that I was uh, a psychologist and an artist. My father was a painter and painted every day of my childhood, and he was a complicated and difficult dad, but. Um, I grew up with this example of someone who didn't show their work a lot, but they painted full time. And that's a really impressive example to see. And the fact that he's not showing it a lot and making a bunch of money from it makes it really clear that this is a personal exercise that is worth thousands of hours a year of dedication. Uh, And so when I started making stuff, I came out of the womb with the knowledge that these weird excursions had a, a, a deep and important and abiding value psychologically. And then, you know, the, the rhetorical flourish at the end of my TED talk is that, you know, by putting on these costume shells, we reveal ourselves. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Um, I think RuPaul that said, we're born naked, everything else is drag. (laughs) Everything we choose to put on our bodies every morning is a form of cosplay. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so interesting that we've come to this place in this conversation because, Ryan, when you and I landed at the airport two nights ago, we were having a conversation on the way to the hotel about... Um, you know, I think a lot of the time with, with fandom or with just becoming obsessed with things and, 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 and wanting to philosophize about them or, um, just research them academically, just completely bathe yourself in whatever, whatever subject it might be, uh, a work pursuit or might be just something you enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating. You talk about your father's painting in that way and how, how kind of informative that was for you because it's tons of fun. Uh, but the people who just are like, there's that side of it, sure, but I just, I just do it. I well, just do it. And there are people. I mean, I think more than not, people don't have support. Right. Didn't find. You know, you know, I, I was lucky to have that example, so that when I started wearing costumes on Halloween that I was serious about, and people made fun of me. I kind of learned to not tell them about my hobbies, but I still knew that they were valid. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people come out of grade school with only the knowledge that they should subsume all of their passions and pleasures because they make them vulnerable. Right. And they do make us vulnerable. Right. And our peers at that age are surpassingly cruel. So when I hear about cosplayers, when I meet cosplayers who got no support and still figured this is the hill I want to die on, I, my hat goes off to yeah. them because that is, it is not easy to, to come up against all that societal pressure and just say, screw it, this is how I, is how I want to exercise my creativity. It, on an on a b- even bigger level, talking about creative pursuits or, or just strictly something that you're passionate about and and fighting through life or any obstacle that might come in the way of getting to that thing. This is something I've spent a huge amount of time thinking about and I f- really feel like a big ingredient is just stubbornness. It's stubbornness to just say I I know the 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 inertia of the world is pulling me in a thousand different directions, but this is the one I this is the direction I want to go in. Mm-hmm. And it's the this kind of strange like resoluteness that it requires to do that plus crucially the privilege and opportunity to have that doorway in the first place well i'm an empiricist so it's really clear to me that when i dive into these things that i'm interested in they tend to bear dividends way down the line that i never expected Mm -hmm. and i've just learned that look i'm not making the world the world is burning right now mm-hmm. and i'm not making it a better place by making these costumes and yet <laughs> i'm feeding something essential in myself that allows me to tell really important stories to myself and those give me a platform from which i can talk about the things that are important to me and that feels like a real grace it's the it's the cosplay dynamic on a one to one level at new york comic con or silicon valley comic con where you did this thing that you just did because you're obsessed with it and you're so passionate about it and you love the work and then you have that moment of connection well, and where someday, someone identifies with it and says, you know what, this brings me joy as well. Yeah, it, that, that part is really important. We yeah. met a, a, we did a live show last night and a 10, like a 10 or 11-year-old fan named Otto was like, I love your podcast. And when you see the joy that what we do brings to someone, especially someone young, yep. everything washes away. Yep. You yeah. know that whatever we're talking about, if it's bringing someone joy... We've helped. Completely. And, and like among the things I love seeing on the floor of a con... 
I love seeing the great costumes, but particularly I'm always noting when the costumes are uncomfortable and I'm watching someone like in a Ray costume yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> adjusting for the millionth time that part of the wrap that just keeps on riding up. And like, that's all just part of it. The discomfort is <laughs> yeah. peace. Yeah. Uh, and then you see people wearing, I love the ones where you're like, wow, you spent like and 90 minutes on that and it's duct tape. But clearly, you were like, I'm going, I gotta show up representing. <laughs> and so that duct tape became the shield and the shaft and the thing and the costume. And like, it's the, it's the hastily put together ones that almost make me super excited because I see the raw dedication to just like showing up. We have the perfect manifestation of that exact thing five feet from us yeah. with your alien suit. Oh, yes, so you yes, have yes. the can suit, which we spoke about before we started recording. I spent 14, 14 years, years yeah. uh, assembling and assimilating the parts, learning and troubleshooting and finding all the found objects and uh, probably about $15,000 of my cash right. invested in that suit. And sitting right next to it is one that was made by North Bergen High School, New Jersey students for their production of Alien in about a week with hot glue <laughs> yeah. and a bunch of garbage. <laughs> and it looks so amazing. I'm kind of appalled at myself. Like it is. I, and I love having it in my collection. I made a trade to the students. Um, I, they're an amazing Stephen Defendini, the teacher who helped them get that play across the line. The, the sheer joy in their exercise is something I'm so happy to have a representation of here in the cave. Completely. I, I think that's a perfect point. We're going to do uh, a walk around. You've okay. been very generous in, in allowing us to, to like, Go through uh, the cave and talk about some of the amazing pieces here, be they Marvel or beyond. Uh, before we do that, tell us, uh, for the fans who aren't familiar, what is Tested? Where can they check it out? Uh, tested.com is my website. It's my primary interface with the world. Uh, you can go to Tested.com or our YouTube channel at Tested. Um, we have hundreds of hours of content of me and amazing collaborators uh, building stuff. We have several different shows that you can tune into from Ariel Waldman's uh, Not Out of This World. It is a compendium of stories about making things and about fascination in general. Uh, and the team that I work with here, I'm very lucky to get to work with them. I, I am very thankful for you letting us come in here, uh, especially with Tucker. He, I think he's going to cry. <laughs> it's so good. But uh, before he sheds those tears, let's walk around and, and, and talk about some cool stuff. By all means. Uh, all right, Adam. What? Please, where you start the oh, mobile. Uh, we're, mobile, we're moving, yeah. we're, we're going around the shop. Over here we've got uh, an R2-D2. Um, when I worked at Industrial Light and Magic for about six months, Kenny Baker's original uh, R2-D2 costume sat next to my desk. Wow. Um, wow. And the thing about the, there's been a many R2s built for the films over the years, probably more than two dozen. But for me, R2 is always one of the original six built for Star Wars, The New Hope. Uh, built by NORAC Engineering. Britain, at the time they were making Star Wars, was packed with out-of-work aerospace engineers because the British aerospace industry had apparently uh, undergone a rough patch. And so these out-of-work aerospace engineers built a lot of the original Star Wars props. And the original R2s, the original six aluminum ones, are made like pieces of jewelry. Like every facet on them is a separate piece of bent and TIG welded aluminum. They're incredible. <laughs> so when I eventually made my own R2-D2, this one is scratch-built completely out of aluminum. I didn't do all the welding that was commissioned, um, but this is a, uh, he's pretty much ready to shoot. Like, he is as accurate as it possibly gets. And when I was building this, my friend at the a friend of mine at the time said, you know, you're making a happiness machine. Because, <laughs> like, if R2's in your house, how could you not be happy? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the captain's chair waking up. 
No, yeah. it is the captain's chair, and uh, <laughs> I've had at least half a dozen astronauts sit in that chair. Oh. Uh, every button does something, uh, and it's a very funny thing about the Captain Kirk chair, which is you should have a seat in it. Because Tucker, Ryan, Ryan, Tucker. Because okay. when you sit okay. in it, you'll notice that you instantly feel you, you have like to sit Captain in a certain Kirk. way. It just it engenders. <laughs> You're so right. This is crazy. You have to kind of lean back. You got to do the. This is the thing. The chair <laughs> engenders a Captain Kirk stance the moment you get in. That that's the thing that's amazing. Truly mind blowing. Yeah. Wow, so, Ryan, please. Uh, that uh, feels crazy. Commander of the International Space Station, Chris Hadfield, sat in that chair and turned to my mom because we were all about to go out to dinner, and he said, "He turned to my mom oh, and he yeah. said, you know, I have in fact commanded a spaceship.'" <laughs> wow! Wow! Okay, wow! 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 All time. Wow! 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 Adam, coming back to the Raiders yeah. shelf. One, I'm curious about the, the the headpiece to the staff of Ra. Yes. Is there a most accurate version here? There, there are actually. I'm assuming there are really several good one actions. that like is held in someone's hand versus one that's actually on the staff. Well, so there's shots. a Ravenwood's bar right. idle uh, headpiece, which is substantively different than the one that you see later in the film. I still have never understood or found out why there's two different versions. Right. If I ever meet <laughs> Steven Spielberg again, I'm going to ask him. Um, but uh, there's been a few runs. Um, Relic Maker and Serednab, I think, on the Replica Props Forum, both have made runs of really excellent ones. I actually have a the cast one of the castings I have. This one comes from Industrial Light and Magic oh, wow. from the late '90s, and uh, some of the more accurate ones I can see come from the same lineage because right. literally, like I can count the number of like <laughs> grains on one of the feathers to make sure. The, oh yeah, this is from yeah. the same from the same mold. That's incredible. Have you ever seen? I brought this up last night when we were driving around. Have you ever seen Steven Soderbergh's Raiders edit? Uh, yes, I did. I in black it, and white yeah. with no sound. I watch it like once every six months. And it's, 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 <laughs> I constantly it's a, ask people. He's totally right. I think yeah. of Raiders as a perfect movie. Yeah. And I actually, when people say, what's your favorite film? I point out, number one, there's at least 30 films in my top 10. <laughs> number two, there are multiple categories of favorite. Like there are films that are really important to me. Like I, I was, when Brazil opened in New York, I was the projectionist at the 8th Street Playhouse. I projected it for seven months and watched it once per day, almost every day. I'm not sure. I watched Brazil recently. We did an unauthorized commentary on it, but I'm not sure I can watch it much more. Right. I've seen it 150 times. So it's really important to my makeup, but it's not like I'm going to watch it again. So I can't say it's one of my favorite movies now because it's so part of me. It's different than being favorite. Right. Then there's films like Raiders or The Departed, where it's like if it's showing up on the television, I'm watching it until yeah. it's done, yeah. and I think of it as like a, just a perfect movie exercise. Yeah. And then there's movies I think are really important, like Citizen Kane, which are you know after you've watched it four or five times, you've kind of gotten it. You know? <laughs> I say this meanwhile, like last week in a hotel room, I watched Endgame for like the seventh time all the way through. Yeah. Can't stop doing it. Uh, speaking of Endgame and, and, and Iron Man, uh, you know we did some stuff with our Spidey show, and now we have. Have an Iron Man suit in front of us. Yes, this is my this is my uh, titanium suit of Iron Man armor. It has the marks from the bullets we shot at it, <laughs> showing that it is absolutely bulletproof. This has a lineage to um, ye olde armor. Uh, when they were making suits of armor after the advent of the gun, they would often shoot the armor with a with a lead shot in order to show that it was proofed, i.e., that it could repel a bullet. So, for this certain sp uh, spate of about 120 years, the armor that you bought would always have a bullet dent wow. in it to show you it could survive. Wow. 
my Iron Man armor has the same. This is uh, $250,000 of 3D printing donated by EOS, 3D printing company that makes these titanium printers, which are used for things like making the veins of uh, jet turbine engines for GE for airplanes. But we, uh, Kevin Feige, gave me permission to use the original Mark II Iron Man files from the first film. Uh, Shane Mahan and the folks at Legacy Effects uh, let me have access to the files, and we printed this from that. So to me, I I started this thinking, oh, it would be a really cool thing to make. I finished it realizing I made a working prototype of Iron Man's armor, like a genuine (laughs) real thing. I did not expect that. It's the greatest. Expect the unexpected. He needs better mount. I know he's like a sort of, he, it's a heavy and weird costume, and making mounts for costumes is yeah. a very complicated enterprise. This is the coolest thing, especially coming off the back of the conversation we just had, in terms of like the lineage of not just you making things, but your interest in these things on the very pure level. But to see something like, you know, your Excalibur sword, yeah. or, uh, you know, a, a lightsaber hilt that you made, um, and then, or, you know, as a fan of tested, the long and storied history of uh, the, the Blade Runner uh, blaster. Yes. Um, uh, it, it is so fascinating to see how like these things live with you yeah. over the course of your well, life. And uh, you can see I'm not very precious about how they live because <laughs> they, they gather a patina of, of their own use and the enthusiasm of everyone that gets to handle yeah. them. Let's go over and see the Blade Runner blaster. Oh my. All right, so uh, let me move the Thanos gauntlet oh, out of the way. Oh, the box, which is one of my favorite one day builds ever. Uh, is that did you just put you the Infinity Stones haphazardly <laughs> on the table? <laughs> I did. That's infinite power right there. Uh, here we go. Wow. Oh, there. Wow. This is so incredible. I love handing this thing to people. Yeah. And what a design, you know, like... A, I know. Just for... Like, that just doesn't look like anything else. No, I know. And I actually, I, I ended up getting to talk to Ridley Scott about it. Uh, and he talked about like how he went to the gun store, went to a specific gun store in LA with the prop master, and was like, "That one, I like that one." <laughs> and it was the Steyr Mannlicher 222, and it, it it is a magnificent sidearm. It is a, a terrific prop and piece of storytelling from Blade Runner. I just it's so fascinatingly ergonomic. Mm-hmm. It fits beautifully, yep. in your hand. I will tell you that when they made the new film, apparently Harrison Ford was freshly reminded of how heavy the gun right. is and yeah. what a pain in the ass it is to hold it outright in your hand. Yeah. It yeah. can get tiring after a while. Really? Wow. Yeah. You do? For real. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I want to bookend this in, given where we're standing and given how our conversation began, speaking about suits of armor, speaking about what that does, metaphorically or literally, mm-hmm. if you could talk about the Excalibur helmet right here. Uh, so yeah, so this is the, the helmet to my Arthurian Excalibur armor. This is made by Terry English. It is an exact copy of the armor that he made for the 1981 film. Um, it even has Terry English's armor, his famous armor mark here, the T with a little crown, and below it, an A. Terry labeled each of the parts with both his mark and an A because I was his assistant on that build. Uh, and yeah, it, this is like the fulfillment to me of, uh, of a, a lifetime of fascination to be able to not only possess this in my collection, but also to have been party to its creation. I, I hammered every single one of the rivets in that costume and there's over 350 of them. Uh, it was an, an amazing week in Cornwall when we put this together. Uh, and I, I will forever be indebted to Terry for taking me on as his apprentice for this build. And 
we are forever indebted to you for letting us come <laughs> here and bask in this glory. Uh, for fans listening, check out Earth's Mightiest Show where we see some more of your Marvel Universe pieces in your collection. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. What a pleasure Adam, to uh, thank you. Thank you. give you the nickel tour. All right, once again, big thanks to Adam Savage. Of course, go to Tested.com. Follow him on all the social media. He's Real Adam Savage on Instagram. He is Don't Try This on Twitter. He's got so many cool things going on. And also check out the Earth's Mightiest Show piece that you did with him where you can see a bunch of the stuff that you guys actually talked about in the interview. Yeah. Let's move on to the question of the week. What is it, Ryan? So next week, we are going to have Tom Brevoort and Ralph Macchio, two longtime Marvel comic staffers, on the show talking about working at Marvel in the 80s and 90s, a little bit of the 70s as well with Ralph, but particularly the 80s and 90s. Lots of really cool stories, lots of background info. So I think our fun question would be, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and work at Marvel, would you prefer to work in the 80s or in the 90s? What book would you do? Like, what would you do if you got to work at Marvel in those wildly formative times for the company and for the industry? I just want John Byrne to pull me into a run of sensational She-Hulk in the 80s. That's all that I would like. Thank you. Goodbye. I think I would – I'd want to be at the very beginning of the 90s because it was no. Also, you're like a 90s boy. Come on now. Yeah. Well, I, Executioner song. Yeah. Oh, it's the juice. Uh, of course, I would champion a MODOK story in every single title. I don't think the industry would have been ready for his own book at the time. But, you know, you put him in every book, it would have been great. Yep. That sounds like you. Yep. That's your calling card. Sure thing. So you guys can email us uh, to twinpodcast.marvel.com. You can tweet using hashtag This Week in Marvel. You can send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel about your, uh, what you would like to do if you were at Marvel in the 80s or 90s. There you have it. But now it's time for community yeah. and friendship. Oh, We got an email in here from Doug Zawiza who says, longtime listener, first time emailer. Thank you for This Week in Marvel. It's great listening every week. Thank you, Doug. He says, my favorite She-Hulk run is the fun, meta-crazy, Dan Slott run, particularly the Paul Pelletier drawn stuff, which is the second series, I think, right? The first one is Juan Babio. I think it's around 13. It, It switches hands. Yeah. Next up, Juan Chego at Chango8TX says, My absolute favorite run of She-Hulk would be Dan Slott's run, where she starts as a hot mess Hulk that gets kicked out of, uh, from the Avengers Tower to the legal badass who finds her strength not only as She-Hulk, but also as Jennifer Walters. Also, seeing her defend villains is great. See, you guys, that She-Hulk run, so good. Totally. Simon Williams, a.k.a. Simon Sebs, says, Favorite run of She-Hulk was the one by Charles Soule. A shame it didn't last longer. I mean, it got... It, it had a we, very complete arc. Yeah. It, it wrapped up very nicely. 25, 30 issues, something like that total, maybe? Sometimes series tell their story, and then they're done. I got an Instagram DM from Wahab. Uh, he says, Hi, we met in San Francisco at your podcast. And I was really impressed with your encyclopedia-like knowledge of everything Marvel. I have a couple of questions I was hoping you can help me with. First, is the Superhero Registration Act still canon? Yes, it's definitely still canon, but I think... So we go from Civil War when the Superhero Registration Act uh, was enacted through the initiative. Eventually... Things fell apart for Iron Man and for the heroes. And then you have Dark Reign where Norman Osborn took over. And I think that's where it sort of got shuttered and like swept Mm -hmm. under the rug where he was like 
being nefarious and doing all his no good stuff. Uh, and I think when that ends is in siege, uh, when Norman mm-hmm. fully has his, his breakdown, he loses control. When the good guys really come back, we have the heroic age. Uh, I think they're all like, all right, guys, no more of this. We're good. We're good. And then it, it sort of goes away. I don't know that there was a definitive moment where they were said no more registration act, but that is sort of the through line. So probably last four years, give or take five years, something like that. Uh, he continues by saying characters that signed up now have their identities known by the government or whatever. Was that is that still the case? I think there's probably some of that information, you know, on like super high level secret stuff. Or it could have been burned out by Tony Stark or other people being like, I, we got to flush this now that Norman Osborn is taking over. So uh, we'll have continue saying, speaking of your podcast, can we get a live TV version of it on Disney Plus? You know what? If Disney Plus comes a knocking and says, Lorraine and Ryan, can we do a live version of This Week in Marvel and air it on the service? We'll do it. Yeah, we're available. Get at us. Yeah, totally. Uh, so this episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Percy Verlin and Zachary Goldberg. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill Duboff is our director of audio. Additional production help from Jamie Freverly and Emily Kimura. And special thanks to who, Lorraine? Today's show was presented by our sponsor, Gamma O's, the breakfast cereal that gives you a daily dose of greens. Gamma O's may cause anger, disfigurement, and hulking out. Not to be confused with Grandma O's, the cereal that makes you old. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.